Well, that was a, a fun uh, little icebreaker game earlier, and um, yeah, it, it probably makes sense, those two questions, that if I made my own Jedi costume, I'd have to compensate by trying to do something cool like learning how to break dance. So that's, that's how that kind of worked together there. But um, yeah, I, I always wondered why Pastor Daniel didn't laugh at my jokes, but now I understand because he doesn't like cheese. So I, I you know, I... You know, all right. Well, um, it is good to be with you again this morning. Um, I, I, I've just had such a sweet time already. Um, just reconnecting with, with old friends. I, I see many familiar faces, people that I've known from uh, way back, from, from UCLA and from uh, some from Sacramento here. And so yesterday I was wearing my UCLA polo, and today I'm representing the Sacramento Kings. And thank you, Ryan. Thank you. There's, there's always a remnant. There, there's always a remnant among the ungodly. But um, So I, I figured this wouldn't be too offensive here, though, because, I mean, honestly, the Warriors are awesome and the Kings stink. So, like, you're not threatened by this at all, right? So you're just like, oh, that's, that's, that's nice. That's, that's quaint. Yeah, we'll pray for you this year. Please, please do. Um, but anyhow, it's, it's, it's good to be with you all. Um, it's... It's been a joy also to see so many kids here at the retreat. I was amused by how many scooters and bikes are parked outside. Like, that is just wild. And I've got three kids, um, Josiah, who is nine, Verity, who is seven, and Jude, who is going to be five next month. And they're all here running around somewhere. And um, one of the things that my kids love is puzzles. How many of you guys like puzzles, like jigsaw puzzles? Some of you guys? I'm curious, do any of you know off the top of your head, if you're like a puzzle enthusiast, what's the biggest puzzle you've ever made? Anybody? Like the most number of pieces? Anybody? No? How, how many puzzle pieces? 2,000. That's a lot of puzzle pieces. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. 2,000. And when, when you are making a puzzle, when you're trying to solve a, a jigsaw puzzle, there's usually some strategies that everyone follows. First, you look at the, the picture on the box, right? You kind of survey what's, what's there and what are the, the major features. And then when you start putting the puzzle together, you typically start with maybe the edges or maybe some of the, the really notable uh, big pieces, certain colors that stand out. And after you have kind of the big picture in your mind, after you start putting the borders and sort of the framework together, then at the end you start filling in the details. That's really the, the only way to solve, especially those bigger, more complicated puzzles. You have to follow those strategies. Otherwise, you're probably going to be frustrated and, and never finish. Seeing the big picture is absolutely crucial in putting together a puzzle so you know how the pieces fit together. And, you know, understanding the Bible works in a similar way. When you understand the Bible, uh, when you understand the, the big picture of the Bible, then you can understand how all the, the smaller pieces fit in. You understand what part they play in the grand story of Scripture. And in our time this weekend, we won't be able to put every piece in place. Uh, there's more than 2,000 pieces in the Bible's puzzle, if you will. But my goal is to back up, help you see the big picture, help you get a grasp of the big picture, and, and maybe give you a framework for how certain big pieces fit together so that you can spend the rest of your life reading, meditating upon, and soaking in the scriptures and filling in those pieces for yourselves. So last night we talked about the, the, the kingdom, and we took the, the theme of kingdom through the four chapters of the Bible, so to speak, the garden, Israel, Christ, and heaven. 
And we focus on the, the kingdom, how the kingdom of God is, is unfolded and established through these covenants, these special promises that God made, and how those were all fulfilled in the person of Christ. This morning, I want to focus on the theme of temple, on the theme of, of temple, God's dwelling, where God dwells. And these two themes are interrelated. They are intertwined. To be in God's kingdom is to dwell with God. To dwell with God is to be in his kingdom. To dwell with God is to be in his, his presence. And God's presence is, is the highest privilege and treasure of God's people. To be with him, to, to know him and see him as he is. In God's presence, there's no sin. There's no curse. There's no pain. There's no broken relationships. There's no what ifs or if onlys when you're in God's presence. Everything is as it should be. In God's presence, there is pure, unbroken fullness of joy. And so every moment that we're away from God's presence, there's this, this homesickness and restlessness. Uh, Augustine put it this way. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So as we trace this theme of temple and God dwells, he dwells with us from Genesis all the way to Revelation, I'm hoping to, to help you gain a fresh vision of heaven. I, I want you to treasure God's presence and long for your eternal home with him in such a way that it would cause you to pursue him now with both hope and holiness. Right? Because if we, if we have our hope set on heaven where we will be with the Holy One in, in purity and with no sin, then we will strive to be holy like him now as well. So let's start again at the beginning of our Bibles with the first chapter of the story, God's presence in the garden. God's presence in the garden. And we'll start this, uh, this morning in Genesis chapter 2. We talked about Genesis 1 last night. We're going to start in at chapter 2 this morning. God's presence in the garden. I want you to look at verses 5 to 9 first. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. Now, let me just pause here briefly. There was a region here called Eden. Now, it's, it's interesting because I think sometimes when we think about God creating the world, we think of it, the whole thing as a paradise. The whole earth was a paradise and luscious and green and all that. And, and actually what we find is that when God created the world, it was sinless. It was perfect in the sense that it was sinless, but it wasn't perfect in the sense of being complete. After all, it says that there was there was no bush of the field, no plant of, of the field had sprung up. Uh, there was a sense in which it was uncultivated as yet. And now, granted, this is on day six. And so he 
plants this garden in this region called Eden. So in Eden, there's a garden. And in that garden, that's where God plants these trees and the tree of life and all that. And so the garden is different than the rest of the earth. The rest of the earth is not yet subdued, not yet having dominion taken over by man, not yet worked, not yet cultivated by man. And so the garden is this, is this paradise where God puts man and, and that's where things start out here. Now look at verses 10 to 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon and the, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And just a comment here. The fact that a river flowed out of Eden tells us that this land had some elevation. It was, it was a little bit higher up on a hill or a mountain, perhaps. Later, Revelation would tell us, like Ezekiel 28, that the Garden of Eden was was on a mountain, on a holy mountain. So here we have this place called Eden. There's this garden in Eden, and it's high up on this mountain where rivers are flowing downstream from this mountain to water the whole earth. And then you look at verses 15 to 17. We read these last night. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, I I emphasize those two commands, to work it and keep it, because those are really interesting terms. Those are actually priestly terms. Those two verbs used together are only used together in relation to priests. They're they're certainly used separately about other people and other tasks. But when those two are used together to work and to keep, Moses, who wrote Genesis, also wrote the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 3, 8, and 18, he tells the priest to work and to keep the tabernacle. To to serve and to guard are other ways to translate that. But it's the same Hebrew word, to work and to keep, to serve, to minister, and to guard— And so priests were supposed to guard the tabernacle in the sense of keeping evil and unholy things out from God's presence. So not only was mankind made to rule as kings over the earth to have dominion and subdue the earth, they were also made to be priests to serve God. Right in the garden, they were kings and they were priests. They were to serve God in the garden. So so God made Adam and Eve to be sort of like king priests, kingly priests. It should be no surprise then, when we read last night, that Israel was commissioned to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a kingdom of priests. We also shouldn't be surprised that 1 Peter 2.9 says that we believers today are a royal priesthood. And all the way towards the end of the Bible, we have, we have that, that great line in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So all the way back in the garden and all the way forward to heaven, mankind was made to be kingly priests, to both rule but also to be priests, to, to serve and minister to God. Now let's keep reading about this garden and what it was like. Look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. 
chapter 3, verse 8, it says, and they, that's Adam and Eve. So this is after they've eaten of the fruit, after they had sinned. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, let me just, let me pause there first. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Now, very simply, God used to walk with man in the garden. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and God would walk through the garden. He would fellowship with them in the garden. He would dwell with them in the garden. The, the verb, therefore, walk here is a, is a kind of a, a special tense in the Hebrew. This has this reflexive sense of walking back and forth. It's not like walking from point A to point B, but it's walking with somebody. It's living with somebody. It's dwelling with somebody. It's, it's connoting relationship. It's, this is why, you know, perhaps somebody has asked you before, how is your walk with the Lord? You don't say, well, I mean, I guess it's okay. I was walking this morning and he's omnipresent. So I, I, yeah, I was walking with the Lord. That's not what they mean. How is your walk with the Lord? How's your relationship? How's your fellowship with the Lord? So, so here he was walking this reflexively back and forth, to and fro, this idea of dwelling with. The Lord God dwells in the garden in the cool of the day. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This, this same idea of walking is used throughout scripture. And whenever that special tense, that reflexive walking is used, it connotes relationship. Just listen to these verses. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord God appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This is about relationship, not movement from A to B, but this is about walking with, dwelling with, having a relationship with. So this was, this was truly paradise. What made the garden so great was not just the trees and the fruit and the cool of the day. What made the garden so perfect for man was that God dwelled there. God walked there. They lived with God, dwelt with God, and had this relationship with him. It was, there was no sin, no curse. There was perfect harmony between man and the animals, but most of all, there was perfect harmony between God and man. But after Eve ate from the fruit and Adam ate from the fruit, they did the unthinkable after that. Look again at verse 8. Genesis 3, 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The greatest privilege of the garden was to be in God's presence. And the moment they ate from the fruit of the tree, they hid. They hid from God. Psalm 16 says that in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. Paul would say in Philippians 1, 23, that to die and be with Christ is better than life. But here, Adam and Eve, after they eat the fruit, they chose death and they chose to hide. One of the most painful effects of the fall is the separation that we experience from God. Not just the, the natural disasters and the, the sin and sickness that happens in this life horizontally, but the greatest effect of the fall is the separation. The worst effect of the fall is separation between God and man. Theologian Anthony Hokema said this, man is bound to God as a fish is bound to water. 
When fish seek to be free from water, it loses both freedom and life. When we seek life and freedom from God, apart from God, we gain slavery to sin and death. So because of their sin, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. God has to banish them and kick them out of the garden. Look at Genesis 3, to 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And here we, we learn some interesting things about the garden in this moment. We learn that at the entrance, the entrance of the, the garden is on the east. It opens to the east. And this is why we live in California, right? Because if you go east, you're going away from the Lord. Keep that in mind. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I lived in Florida for a while. Anyway, all right. So anyway, just, just a joke. Guys, chill out. So the, the entrance of the garden is on the east, right? And at the entrance, God places cherubim. Cherubim are angels. They're, they are not your uh, chubby, fat baby angels with wings that float on clouds and stuff like that. No, cherubim are fierce warrior angels. They're likely the highest order and class of angels. They, they proclaim and they guard the glory of God. They stand at the entrance of the Garden of Eden with flaming swords to keep Adam and Eve out. Those, I mean, when I think of flaming swords, this should come as no surprise to you now, I think of lightsabers. We just, zoom, 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 like, you cannot come. You cannot come through. And why was the way back into the garden closed off Yes, it was to keep man uh, from eating of the tree of life, but also it, it was because man could not dwell in God's presence anymore. God dwelled in the garden, and man is sinful. They had to leave. They could not come into the presence of holy God. So, so paradise was lost. God made man to worship, to know, and to love God, and he made man in the garden, put him there to dwell with him, but because of sin, man is exiled, exiled from the presence and person of God. And every time man looked back at the garden, it, it's interesting because they're banished out, but as best we can tell, they could still see it. The garden's still there, likely until the flood. Every time man looked back at the garden, he would see the angels, he would see the cherubim and the swords, and perhaps they could look back and see and remember we used to live there with God. With God. How foolish were we? One children's book I like reading to my kids, the, the garden, the curtain, and the cross, puts it this way, that the cherubim were like a big keep out sign. Because you have sin, you can't come in. Because you have sin, you can't Come in. So, so here are the questions that we should be asking as the first chapter of this story closes. Will man ever be back in God's presence? Will man ever be back in God's presence? And also, will God ever dwell among man again? Will, will this ever be fixed? Man's cast out. Will man ever be able to come back? 
Well, the next chapter in the story is God, uh, of God's presence uh, jumps ahead to Israel in the wilderness. The next chapter is God's presence in Israel. God's presence in Israel. Now, after God had redeemed Israel from slavery to Egypt, and he brought them to Mount Sinai, he entered into a covenant with them, the Mosaic Covenant. He entered into this with them as a nation. And as we said last night, they were called to be a kingdom of priests, and in order for them to succeed as a kingdom of priests, they had to be holy. They had to be holy to represent him well, but they also had to be holy because God intended to dwell among them. Ever since Genesis 3, God could not dwell with man anymore. But all of a sudden, this privilege shows back up. If you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 25, I don't want to steal too much of Pastor Steve's thunder here, so I'll try to be brief. I know he, he, he's, he'll be here soon in the book of Exodus, but I want you to turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. And this begins the section on the tabernacle, which if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, read through the Old Testament, um, Exodus 25 and on, the, the tabernacle section, is, is sometimes the, uh, the graveyard of many Bible reading plans. You laugh because you feel guilty, I know. But when you understand this theme of God's presence, this is a really amazing and special passage. When you understand the privilege of God's presence, this is not boring, this is, this is mind-blowing. I want you to look at Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And then you jump down. So he's, he's getting these, these uh, offerings from the people for what? What is this for? In verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And he definitely does go into exact detail. But I want you to focus on verse 8. That is the key here. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God says, here's my purpose. Here's my intention. Here's my desire. I want to dwell with you. I dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. They had to leave, but now I want to dwell with my people once again. I want to dwell in your midst. Therefore, make me a sanctuary. And it needs to be just so because I am holy and you are not. It must be just so with the right details because I, I, holy God, will dwell in your midst. If you jump ahead a few chapters to Exodus 29, you see some similar language there. Exodus 29 verses 45 and 46. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Why did God deliver Israel from Egypt? It wasn't just to deliver them from uh, an oppressive situation. It wasn't just to call them into being his kingdom of priests to go and be a blessing to the world. He also delivered them from Egypt so that he could dwell among them. He has a desire to dwell with them. What does this say about our God? Adam and Eve hid, but God pursues this is, this is so sweet to just savor and consider. And so here in Exodus, God gives them instructions for building him a sanctuary, a tent, a tabernacle. This is kind of a, a mobile temple, if you will, that they can pick up and move around in the desert. 
Now, if you've tried to read through the Bible, and I hope you have, again, this, this section can be painful for some because it, it seems tedious. The, all the, the finely twisted linen and blue and gold and silver and all this stuff. But, but again, when you understand what's going on, this, this, is, this is exciting. It's repeated. All the repetition shows you how important this is. I mean, there are chapters and chapters of, of detail on how to build it. And then after the golden calf, there are chapters and chapters of them building it with the exact same detail. Why all the repetition? Because this is so important. I want you to imagine for a moment if, if some famous, famous celebrity was staying at your house, somebody that you just so long to have time with, perhaps like Pastor Steve, and, and you all know how particular he is. And so, you know, before he comes over, you think, oh man, I better clean up my house. I better do this and do that. I better put away these things and... Yeah, you, you want to get the house just so because, again, you know how Pastor Steve is. But it's such, a, it's such a privilege and such a joy and such a blessing to have him in your own house. You do it with joy and you, you don't begrudge the details because you're so excited. That's what the tabernacle instructions are like. How much more so if God is going to dwell in your midst? This would have been a joyful delight. For the first time in Eden, God would dwell among men. And he gave them instructions for this tabernacle. Especially, I want to focus just on one piece of it, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this golden box. If you've seen you know, that one Indiana Jones movie, that, that's about right. That's, that's, that's kind of what it looks like, sort of. It's roughly three and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall. It's made of wood. It's covered with gold inside and out. And... And on top, there's this golden lid, this lid made of solid gold with cherubim on it, with cherubim on it, one on either side with their wings outstretched. And if you go to Exodus 25, I want you to look at verses 17 and 18. Exodus 25, 17 and 18, it says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. This goes on top of the ark. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make... Two cherubim of gold of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, these cherubim, these are the same angels that were placed at the entrance of the garden. They're on this mercy seat. Why is that? Because God will meet with his people there. The cherubim were guarding and therefore in some sense representing the presence of God in the garden. Here, the the cherubim with their wings outstretched towards the middle of the mercy seat. They were saying, this is where God dwells. God will be here. So the ark comes to represent God's very presence on earth. Look at verse 22 of Exodus 25. He says, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God is there. God is between the cherubim. He's enthroned there and he speaks to his people. Uh, the, the ark represents God's very presence. God dwells there. The, later scripture would say that, that God is enthroned above the cherubim, above the mercy seat. So God's presence and glory dwelt above the ark and, and because of that, it couldn't just be out in the open for any to see. I mean, after all, they couldn't go back in the garden. There had to be some separation because man is sinful and God is holy. And so they had to build this tabernacle, this, this mobile tent. And the, the, the tent had all these different sections where you couldn't come in. And the very innermost section of the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies. This is the, most, the part that's most separated from the commoners, 
There's all these curtains separating you. And the, the curtain right in front of the Holy of Holies was decorated in a special way. There was a thick curtain in front. Look at Exodus 26, verses 31 to 34. He says, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made into cherubim. Sorry, it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the most holy place from uh, the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, the holy of holies. So here you see that not only are there cherubim on the mercy seat, there's cherubim on this, on this curtain, separating mankind from the presence of God. The very purpose of the tabernacle was to allow God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people without completely consuming them. And these detailed arrangements were necessary because sinners in the presence of God are in a frighteningly dangerous position. They have to, there has to be some separation. They can't come in direct contact with the presence of God. So there's all these instructions. And the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was in the dimensions of a cube. It, was the, it had the same length width and height. It's a perfect cube and it also opens to the east. If you were to enter the Holy of Holies, you would come from the east and go west again, California. From the east, you would enter in through this veil of cherubim and no one could go in there except the high priest and him only once a year to make sacrifices. This was all teaching something special. This is all reinforcing the, the privilege of God's presence and yet the separation that sin creates. So the Holy of Holies, God's presence was cut off by curtains. It was like a big keep out sign. Because you have sin, you can't come in. So again, the, the question is, will man ever dwell with God again? And the answer is yes, but there's limitations here. Yes, but... There's a veil. There's, it's not full. They're seeing dimly through a mirror, so to speak, but not face to face. God would dwell again with Israel, but it wouldn't be like it was in the garden. But still an amazing privilege. And that's why later the tabernacle and, and later the temple would be the center of all Israelite worship. They would, all, they would direct their prayers there. Their sacrifices were there. This was where God dwelled. And so their worship centered on the temple and on the tabernacle. That's where God met with them. And, and God, the divine author, has designed the tabernacle to be an echo and a shadow of the garden. Perhaps you've already kind of picked up on some of that from what we were talking about. The garden's entrance is on the east the tabernacle's entrance, and especially the Holy of Holies as well, the entrance is on the east. There are cherubim guarding the entrance to the garden. There are cherubim guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies. Not only that, but there were priests in the garden, Adam and Eve, to work and to keep the garden. And there are priests in the tabernacle to serve and to guard. Same Hebrew words. Not only this, but I wonder if you've ever considered the, the floral and angelic designs of the tabernacle. If you want to read later, the, the priests would have pomegranates decorating their robes. If you read later on the temple that Solomon would build, 
there would be angels and trees and different things. In, in fact, the lampstand is made to look like an almond tree. If you read about the tabernacle, there, there's all this fruit and tree imagery, almost as if it's a garden. Why? Because in God's perfect design, the tabernacle and later the temple were meant to be a picture pointing back to the garden where man used to dwell with God. But most of all, the thing that links these two together is that the one who dwelled in the garden dwells in the tabernacle, God's presence. God walked in the tabernacle. God walks among his people in the tabernacle. The people understood that having God's presence was the greatest blessing and God had promised them prosperity and land. But after they sinned by making the golden calf, I want you to consider what happened in Exodus 33. Look a few chapters over to Exodus 33. So they get these instructions. They sin by making the golden calf. And in Exodus 33, look at verses one to four. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring, I'll give it. He says, go, go up to the land. I promise it to you. I'm going to give it to you. Verse two, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, to the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, this is great. A land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe for you, you think milk tea and honey boba. I don't know, whatever it is for you. Just, it's great. It's awesome. It's this great place. But, but I will not go up among you. I'm still giving you the land. I'm still giving you the blessing of the land, but I will not go with you. Lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. What would you say to this offer? You can still have the stuff, you just won't have me. Thankfully, the people understood this was not a good deal. Look at verse four. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one, no one put on his ornaments. They understood this is, this is a disaster. This is not a good deal. The point was never the land. The point was never the blessing. The point was God. And if God doesn't go, then we don't want to go. I mean, just consider for a moment, it's, it's as if there's a couple who's, who's engaged and, and they're planning their wedding day, but the, the morning of the wedding, and, and they've got this, this lavish honeymoon planned out. But the morning of the wedding, the bride says to the groom, or the bride-to-be rather, says to the groom, you know what? I've changed my mind. I don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, but you know what? We already bought all the stuff for our, our honeymoon. So why don't you just go ahead? I mean, like we were talking about how much we're going to enjoy this and that and all these different activities and just lounging on the beach and doing this. I know how much you want to do it. So just go, but I'm not going to go because this just isn't for me anymore. The wedding's off, but you can still go. Well, what would the man say? Oh, sweet. Can I bring a friend instead? No. The point is you and me together. If you're not going, I'm not going. We, we need to figure this out. And so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and see what happens. In Exodus 33, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses intercedes, and God, in his grace and mercy, says, okay, I'm coming. Moses understood the great blessing of being in God's presence. Uh, Sorry, he understood that the blessing of being God's people is not in the stuff that he gives, but it's in God's very presence with them. Friends, if, if your idea of Christianity is that God gives you comfort and ease and he protects you from any and all suffering and hardship, you have got it all wrong. The great blessing of following God is having God not the stuff that he gives. Now let's fast forward to when Israel arrives in the promised land. The Bible describes the promised land with language that should remind you of the garden. Uh, First and most importantly, God dwelt with his people in the promised land. In Leviticus 26, he's looking forward to that time. He says, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That's Leviticus uh, 26, 11 and 12. Again, that's that word walk, that reflexive word. All throughout the the books of Moses, the the Pentateuch, all throughout the the books of Moses, when when we get the the commands of the Mosaic Covenant, here's what you need to do, Israel. Here's what I'm expecting you to do, Israel, as my people. And God gives blessing for, for obedience, and he gives curses for disobedience. He says, if you obey, I'll bless you in these ways. If you disobey, I'll curse you in these ways. And if you read all the statements about the blessing, it, it sounds as if all the curse goes away. If you obey me, I'll give you crops in the right season. If you obey me, I will heal you of all diseases. If you obey me, I will bless you in these and these ways. It, it's almost as if when Israel gets to the land, if they obey God and keep his covenant, the curse is stayed. The curse is rolled back, and it's almost as if the land will flourish almost like the, the garden. Almost like the garden. In Deuteronomy 6, God describes the land. He says, it's going to be better than Egypt was. In Egypt, you had to plant stuff. But in the promised land, I will do the planting. Where else has God planted stuff? In the garden. In the garden. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the the garden to the east. Do you know how Israel enters the promised land? The most direct path would have been from the south, but they came around from the east. When Solomon, David's son, builds the temple, he builds it in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. The, The temple where God would dwell was up on a mountain in the promised land, just like the garden was up on a mountain as well. So you see here that, that paradise lost in Eden is not the end of the story. God is, was working to establish his kingdom, as we talked about last night, but God still also desires to dwell with his people. And so here he dwells with Israel, though in a temple, though behind a curtain, but he is with them in their land. And that's what makes the land like the garden. But of course, just as Adam and Eve were exiled, because they failed, Israel fails and is also exiled from the land. They are exiled into Babylon. And the temple was destroyed, which is absolutely devastating. That, that's why there's a whole book called Lamentations. Why? Because it was, it was so terrible that the temple was destroyed and that they were being exiled. But that's not the end of the story. 
Even while under judgment, God gave the people hope. Turn to Isaiah 51. We're going to speed up here. Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah was giving oracles of, of hope and salvation to a people who had been exiled and, and hopeless. In Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 3, he says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes all her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. He says, you're out of the land. Your land is desolate. Your land is burned down. Your land is a wasteland, but I will restore it to be like Eden. I'm not done yet. The garden is lost, but then I dwelled with you in, in Israel. The temple was destroyed, but I'm still going to make this right. I'm still going to restore that paradise where I dwell with my people. I want you to consider these words. Go to Ezekiel 36, just a couple books over to the right. Ezekiel 36. Uh, this is another key passage on the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 is a well-known uh, section on the, the new covenant starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And here's this key verse. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Now let me jump down to verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. See, their hope was not just in land, just as real estate. Their hope was in a restored relationship with God, a restored paradise with God, the restored blessing of God, that they would have the fellowship that Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall. And God says, I will still do it. Though you have been unfaithful, Israel, I will keep my covenant. I will keep my new covenant. I will do these things for you because I am gracious. But the Old Testament ends on a cliffhanger with it to be continued. Even though Israel eventually comes back to the land of promise, these promises are not fulfilled. They're back in the, the land of Canaan at the, at the end of the Old Testament, but they are under occupation by foreign nations. 
Solomon's temple has been destroyed and what stands in its place is, is a sad shadow. God is not there with them anymore. They're in the land, but it doesn't seem that God is there. So what happens? So we've seen God's presence in the garden, God's presence in Israel, and third chapter, God's presence in Christ. God's presence in Christ. Turn to John chapter one. These are familiar words. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word, speaking of Christ, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word there for dwelt, it's a Greek word because it's the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this would be the word that would be used to describe God's dwelling with them through the tabernacle. Some would say, you could, you could rightfully translate this as, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt, he tabernacled among us. God, the presence of God, tabernacles, not in a tent, but in a person, in Jesus Christ. Remember, another name that was given to Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Uh, jump over to John chapter 2, verse 18. John chapter 2, verse 18. So the, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you do? Uh, do, do, you, do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Who are you, you know, Bob the Builder? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, Jesus is talking about his own body. He says, I am the temple. You're looking for a building where God dwells. God dwells here. Not in a building, but in a body in Jesus. That's where God's glory was on display. That, you're looking for a building where God's glory was, where sacrifices are made, where man can meet with God. All those things happen in Jesus. That's where God dwells. That's where man meets with God. And that's where sacrifices would be made. Or rather, he would be the sacrifice that would be made. In fact, in, in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says to, the, to, to, his, to his opponents, the religious leaders of that day, he said that something greater than the temple was here. He doesn't just say he is the temple. He says that he's something greater than the temple. And this is why when when Jesus died on the cross, and you know this well, when Jesus died on the cross, his death tore open the curtain. The veil that was in the temple at that time, the moment Jesus died, the veil was torn. And it says in scripture, it tells us specifically, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't give us details for nothing. If it gives us a detail, there's a meaning behind it. It says the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. If you were to go in there and try to tear it, you would tear it from the bottom up. It's torn from top to bottom because God did it. When Jesus died on the cross, God says, the keep out sign is over. Entrance into my presence has been granted, has been purchased, has been given to you through Jesus. 
something greater than the temple is here. The temple had limitations. The te- temple had restrictions. The temple had curtains. And Jesus says, it is finished. The, te- the, the curtain is torn and you may come in. You may know the father. You can come to his throne of grace at any time. And amazingly, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus leaves and says, now the temple is you. You are the temple. You're the temple of the living God. While he's gone, you, the people of God, are the temple. You see, the, the, the sanctuary was a, a building in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was called a sanctuary where God would dwell in the Old Testament. But now, uh, our church buildings are not sanctuaries in the same way. Uh, God doesn't dwell in our churches. The, our church building is not the place where God dwells. Instead, he dwells in us. He dwells in us, among us. Ephesians chapter two, look there very briefly. I just want to show highlights to to help you see this thread throughout scripture. Ephesians chapter two. Verses 19 to 21. So then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And now he begins this metaphor built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, this whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Christ is the cornerstone. The prophets and apostles are the foundation. We are built up on top of that as the temple. And God says he dwells among us by the spirit so that we are a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. God dwells not in a building, not in a place, but among his people. That's why 1 Peter 2 calls us living stones. Living stones that have been put together into a temple to offer sacrifices to God. If we are corporately the temple, and the temple was to be holy. And, and, and it was to be a beacon of God's presence and glory to a watching world. And what does that mean for us personally? The temple was to be a holy place. The priests were to be holy people. If we are to be a temple where God dwells and a priesthood that represents God, then we too must be holy. And we can't do this on our own. Uh, if you take a brick out of the temple and you just lay it on the side, that brick is good for nothing. It's a stumbling block. This is why we can't live our Christian lives alone. We need to be together with the body because a a rock by itself is just a rock. But when you put them together with a master builder, it's a temple where God dwells. Not only this, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is is just so helpful. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 16, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, of God dwelling with us, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Why should we be holy? Because a holy God dwells in you and among you. We need to be holy. But this isn't 
where the temple imagery ends either. In the very last chapter of this story, and this will be brief, the last chapter of this story in Revelation 21 and 22, this theme of temple comes back up again. God's presence in heaven. God's presence in heaven. That's the fourth chapter. On your own free time, if you read Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, you will see connections, allusions back, to, back and forth one to another. You'll see those similarities, but we won't be able to do that together now, but I, I do want to highlight some things in Revelation 21 and 22. So turn there. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let me just pause there. This is the New Jerusalem. This is coming down as a, as a bride coming down out of heaven. It says in, um, well, okay, we're just for time's sake. Let me just describe this to you. Go read this later. New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And it's, it's this city with 12 gates and 12 foundation stones. On, on, on 12 of them is written the, the 12 tribes of Israel. On the other are the 12 names of the apostles. In other words, this is the people of God, old and new, joined together, worshiping God. And it says this city is made of gold, and it's a cube, a huge cube. Its length and breadth and height are all the same. What else was a cube in the Old Testament? The Holy of Holies, where God dwelled. The Holy of Holies is not this small place where you can't come in. Now it's this huge city where we all dwell with God. Not only that, we, we read this yesterday in chapter 22, it says that there's the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the city. It says that the tree of life is yielding its fruit on either side. What started as a garden is now a, a garden city. And God dwells there with his people. This is a recreated Eden, but it's better than Eden because Eden was the starting point. This is a completed Eden. This is an Eden fully mature, fully consummated. This was the city that Hebrews 11 talks about, that Abraham was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. That city is here. Friends, this is why God made the world. To glorify himself, yes, to save for himself a people, yes, but also to dwell with his people. Remember, God is sovereign and wise. And so the way the story ends is the way that he intends it to end. There's no what ifs and if onlys when God is in charge. And so when it says that we finish the story by us dwelling with God in paradise, that, that was God's intention. I hope that this would encourage you, that this would challenge you to value the things of the Lord, not the things of this world. To say with the psalmist of Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. There's nothing on earth I want instead of you. And even in heaven, the, the thing I want is you. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, has this classic line. 
the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Friends, I I hope you look forward to heaven because of Christ. And even now, I hope you live for him because you understand he dwells in you and among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Oh Lord, it's, it, your word is so rich and, and we are barely scratching the surface, but I pray that you would use these truths and by your spirit that you would fan a flame of love for you, of zeal to live for you, the Holy One, that we would, having these promises, purify ourselves. Oh Lord, would you help us to live for you faithfully and to long for you wholeheartedly. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.